Gilead Coaches. Привет. Comrade? Is it Comrade? No, it's not Comrade. No, not Comrade. You're on the wrong side. Yeah, wrong side. See, I get confused. It's got to be... Uh, I remember there, there was this report that came out of... Uh, so ABC was like embedded with one of the Ukrainian or one of the Russian teams or like uh, platoons or squads. And they heard something on the radio that was like, um, one of the soldiers was saying like, we don't know who to shoot at. They all look like us. Yeah. I wonder what they meant. Like they're all dressed like them or. No, it's probably because like Ukraine, U- Ukraine, Ukrainians and like Russian people are like, because they were part of the Soviet Union, like it was all. Yeah, but you had Americans same. shooting at Germans in the 1940s, and they all look alike too. Oh, true, true. That is true. They just what you know, random white dude, random white dude. Yeah, I wonder if that was the same in, uh, like, when Iraq invaded Kuwait. It's like all just. Um, isn't this is this not the point of uh, uniforms? I mean, true. Yeah, yeah. Right. Is it a war crime to dress in the uniform that is not yours? Technically, isn't that what Russia's doing right now? Like the, the, the saboteurs in Kiev that they're just dressing yeah, but, up I like mean, Ukrainians. Russians don't really care about rules. Oh, true, true. Because <laughs> if they did, they wouldn't have invaded in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So this, is, has been, this has been this has been like story of the week, obviously, because since the last time we spoke. It went from being like a super tense uh, situation on the border to actually being an outright invasion. Yeah. And um, I've been talking about it nonstop. And there's a lot of people who who like DM me or message me saying like, you know, why do you care? And there are other situations going on. And I actually put this in a Twitter thread and I said, listen, the other situations that are going on in the Middle East or elsewhere, it's basically, you know, you live in a house in a, in a certain neighborhood and there are house fires going on at... Uh, you know, a couple houses up and down the street from you. Um, but the situation in Ukraine is sort of a, a small to medium-sized fire that happens to be burning inside of a you know petrochemical refinery or a um, a gasoline storage facility. Uh, happens to be one of the largest refineries or storage facilities in the world, and you only live a mile from it. So, in the grand scheme of things, that is a far more consequential fire than anything burning around you because. If it gets any bigger and actually sets fire to anything inside that refinery and causes an explosion, that will wipe out the map, let alone your particular neighborhood or street. So yeah, in the grand scheme of things, that fire is far more consequential. Um, it's it's yeah, definitely like to, to echo that point too. Like, I mean, it's it's it is the only situation where it's not a cold war. It's not just people putting sanctions or tariffs on each other. It's an actual outright war like people are dying there's fighter jets screaming over cities and like a, a genuine invasion and and you know one that we haven't really seen or heard about in, in, in quite some time but in europe i think yeah I, I think the two words that that have now you know there's a lot of worries about why should we care why shouldn't we care why has every vc and founder on my timeline turned into this like foreign policy analyst all of a sudden it's it's like all these memes and shit comes up and then the one thing that the two words that I think is on on everyone's mind is um, Article Five. The minute they step foot into a NATO country, that's it. Like, literally, the entire world is in this now. I mean, I, I don't a, know whether the Russians are actually that stupid. Yeah, but um, if I think if one soldier like pisses over the border, like into Poland. All yeah. hell will break loose, and it would suck for the world. It really would. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, just like existing in in like we we just got out of COVID. Now all of a sudden, you have a world war to worry about. It's like, yeah, not not. It was funny. It's pleasant. like after you know after the first world war, there was the pandemic, the Spanish flu, yeah, and then after the Spanish flu, you had like the Roaring Twenties. Uh huh. Right, and then and then they went into Great Depression and World War. Uh huh. Right. I mean, with us, like we had the pandemic, and now the economy shit. We're looking at a world war, and we skipped the whole Roaring Twenties bit. I think so. I think I started feeling a bit of it with, you know, twenty a bit of twenty twenty one, and then twenty like heading into twenty twenty two. I was like, okay, 
you know, people are raising at ridiculous valuations. Shit's going around. People are making money they haven't seen before. Um, but yeah, we're definitely in, we're, we've definitely like drove through that point fairly, fairly quickly. We drove through that era, era very quickly, but you know, I'm hoping the same way our, our version of the Roaring Twenties finished up, you know, we, we can wrap up any sort of conflict pretty quickly as well. But yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, I hope, the light, I hope the roar in our twenties isn't, you know, uh, a nuclear device basically tearing the air apart and ionizing it, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, like I know we were supposed to kind of get into what, what our weeks were like, but that's pretty much been, I, I feel both of our weeks, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I went to Dubai and, uh, you know, I fall asleep and I wake up and I check the news and all hell's broken loose. Yeah. Yeah. And same work as usual, kind of growing, growing pains, good problems to have. And then next thing you know, I get a DM like, oh shit. And then I check it out and all over Twitter. It's well, Russia is no longer a, a looming threat. Now it's, it's actively invading and killing the citizens of another country. And, and it's doing so in a very, very public way, which is concerning, but mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like, then please stop me at any point here, because this is just my thought process looking at this, but a lot would kind of go through someone's mind in a situation like this. I mean, naturally, you worry about the human aspect of things. You know, lives are being lost, uh, whether it's soldiers or civilians, homes are being lost, people are being displaced. There's newly made immigrants now fleeing their homelands. And I think Poland even threw up a number, like 100,000 people from Ukraine have already crossed the border. And all these Ukrainians are now going to different parts, uh, going to different neighboring countries to just live the rest of their lives. Um, and just, you know, worrying about that as, as a, as a byproduct of everything that's been going on. And I mean, if we've learned anything from immigrants in the past, it'll be very curious to see what sort of opportunities these immigrants are going to seize in their new homes. I mean, if any of them come into the U S and become these awesome founders that build these cool services, that's going to be, you know, some really good, good, good things to, to keep track of. It would be a, a repeat of the late forties into the mid fifties, right? Because there's a huge exodus from Europe, massive brain drain, a lot of it going to the U S and then they become Titans of industry soon after. And this is not yeah. to discount the whole humanitarian aspect, because I mean, obviously before they do any of that, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and they're going to need housing and food and yeah the bare basics and you know thankfully this time around with at least the, the number of people actually making it to the polish border um they seem to be fairly well taken care of thanks to the eu yeah no they're, they're definitely under good care and, and i think the, the the good thing and the bad thing is that like neighboring countries and just a lot of these international councils and organizations um have systems in place to not let immigrants and refugees go through the same shit that they went through in previous times so like in, in, in the previous world war but so going back to the point naturally you know all this stuff kind of comes to mind because it's the human aspect those poor poor people men and women kind of um going through the things that they're going through right now in ukraine but after that phase of grief and, and worry and sorrow kind of comes a feeling of oh shit like not all has been lost here because when Russia first started invading earlier this week, the first thing that all of us had, the popular opinion at the time was basically, they're going to take this in a couple of days, it's over. Uh, and, and they're going to start eyeing and looking at other, other countries. But Russia's facing quite a bit of resistance right now at the hands of like even civilians in Ukraine who have taken up weapons. You know, we've seen like fathers making their wives and children kind of go across the border boulder border and and you know picking up arms and fighting grandparents picking up arms and fighting um so as this as this invasion kind of turns more into a battle or independence um of you know ukraine an entire nation the the first thing we both do i think you and i do naturally is we look at parallels you know uh, the most obvious one is there's a reason both of us were born outside of kuwait um well me more so because inside yeah. of kuwait was not exactly an option Exactly. Yeah, because that yeah, nineteen ninety was was you know the height of it. I mean, I was just a I, I don't even know if I was a thought back then, but yeah, Lord knows. Um, but um, yeah, like going going farther back though. So so back to say the Second World War. 
I did a little bit of digging into the results and consequences of those horrible six years. And what what stood out to be the most is just how much like how many technologies that we use right now and kind of depend on not only individually but as a society um, were started or or whose ideas or iteration processes were seeded from that time as a result of that war. Uh, now, you know, again, disclaimer, this was not the first thing that stood out to me. Obviously, there was a human cost, the horrible genocide of race and all that yeah. stuff. But obviously, this so, is ultimately a tech podcast, so we have to kind of pivot back to it. Yeah. So we'll have to focus on focus on the innovation that kind of happened there. So to kind of going off of the structure of last episode, to keep the things a little organized, I've kind of broken these innovations and inventions up into three different categories. So first one is, you know, non-tech ones, non like, say something that wasn't technical, that was basically very be beneficial to the to an individual. Um, these are like tools and physical materials, so on. And then there were the tech ones that were beneficial to individuals. So devices and forms of understanding and communication. Um, and then there was the new tech inventions that were beneficial to society as a whole, like, um, you know, more massive methods, methods of communication and new systems and um, standards basically that have been set in place. Um, I think the 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 ones we're both mo the most excited to talk about are the ones that really change the way we work as a society. So there are three massive ones to be specific here. Um, and to clarify, you know, these are basically things that have either been thought of or have either been like seeded in some sort of laboratory in World War II um, that was basically built as a sort of like military um research project to see how this can help the war effort but ended up turning into something very very beneficial after you know after the fact or after the war so number one is basically what we're using to talk right now and how you're probably using and, and how you're probably like listening to this in the first place which is the internet you know i i know both you and i kind of hopped into quite a bit of a rabbit rabbit hole with you know the very very first thing involving the internet which is a very primitive version of the computer called the bomb which was set by alan turing in bletchley park that was pretty much just a, a sequential machine that you know tested out multiple configurations to guess the daily config of nazi enigma machines and it ended up working and what was it like shaving almost two years off of the war because they started reading messages that have been coming in through like across the line uh, on, on a daily basis right. but Shortly after that war came multiple iterations of that computer, including the Colossus. So also this is another one in Bletchley Park, which is built by, um, you know, British scientists to break the Lorenz cipher. And if I remember correctly, the Lorenz cipher is a, um, it was basically the, the, the encrypted method of communication that high ranking Germans, as well as Hitler kind of used to communicate. So the Enigma was basically used between platoons and squads. And I think the one that Alan Turing uh, broke was the one with the Navy the one the navy used uh but the lorenz cipher was you know much more valuable communication because it happened higher up in the german structure um after that came the eniac so the first uh did i pronounce that right i don't know but yeah, the ENIAC. the first uh yeah so so the first programmable general purpose digital com computer and you know all these basically became more complex more uh free in terms of programmability how how you could set it up and what you can use it for um, and these iterations basically gained the ability to communicate so a lot of allies started building their own networks of these computers so the most famous one was in the us uh, arpanet um, and then the uk with their npl network and france with cyclades or cyclades something like that um, but pretty much you know those started off at nodes in different universities and what as computers became more powerful and more compact, um, there were more applications that it replaced. There's more roles that it automated. There's more tools that it used and generated to enhance people's daily lives. And it's why, you know, we're reading our notes right now off of a Google Doc that is live, and we can both edit it and look at each other. And that's there are no notes. This is totally off the cuff. Wink. wink. Yes, exactly. <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, we're just naturally that smart, you know. Yeah, but um. It's a, uh, it's, we, uh, what's that called? The first thing, when I said that said smart, that there was like this one alpha force brain pill that people like to push, um, but we're not using that. This is a stupid thought that came up, but um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. 
Oh, true, true. Because Doge is shitting the bed, which is again staying away from Web three for this part for this episode. Um. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, so what started off as a need to, you know, understand the communications of different people turned into pretty much our daily lives right now because there's nothing we do today that's not on the internet or there's not a day that goes by where we don't use the internet. So obviously a game changing revolution. Um, the second one was a bit interesting uh, that stood out to me as I was kind of doing my research in this, but ballistic missiles. So mm-hmm. simply put the, the demand was that forces needed a way to send missiles over a long range to hit targets in another country. So the well, most obvious specifically to be able to do it without uh, using, you know, a crude aircraft, which in any case was always slower than uh, a rocket propelled warhead. Uh, exactly. So a fighter would be able to intercept a bomber being sent with a bomb. But if you're sending a V2 rocket, for example, at uh, Mach 1 point, whatever, then a propeller uh, driven fighter like a Spitfire would not be able to make it in time to actually intercept it. Right. So it posed not only a uh, like quite a big threat to anyone that this was going to be used against, but also it just gave one of the powers a technical advantage because they knew that that's something they can rely on. And then, you know, from a systems perspective, you just need to think of a way to keep producing those so they can do damage. But, you know, kind of like what you mentioned with the V2 rocket. So Werner von Braun and, and his team of Nazi scientists worked through multiple iterations of these missiles, finally coming up with the V2 that we used, that was used to bomb London in 1945. Um, quick side note, which is interesting too. If you go to the Imperial War Museum in London, you can actually see one of those v2s and it's been like dissected a little bit so you can see the internals as well and how the, the engine works that's yeah, it, pretty it's a pretty v2 cool. that was captured in germany so it was never actually fired at london but you can see the whole thing uh-huh. um it's cool though yeah yeah it's, it, it's, it's, it's awesome it's, i went with you didn't i um may no. i think so maybe uh I don't, no i don't think so but it was mm-hmm. it, it was one of the coolest things i'd ever seen i just wanted to kind of pick it up and take it home uh, yeah, yeah, same. Yeah. So if, if we ever have FU money, that's 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 going to be my first purchase for sure. Yeah, we're we're buying a V two and firing it at the neighbor. Yes, that's, yeah, <laughs> V two bros. Um, <laughs> no, so so shortly after the war, there was a whole Operation Paperclip thing, which you know, well, what's the best TLDR way to to to, to phrase this? It was like the U.S. went to them and went, hey. Nazi scientists. Um, so you can go to prison or die, or you can come help us with our rockets. So right. Werner von Braun was like, okay, cool. I guess I'm going to be a NASA scientist. So yeah. he basically used those v- V2 designs as a scientist at NASA to build the rockets that enabled the Mercury and Gemini missions that all mm-hmm. gave us all the data that we needed to embark on the Apollo missions, which, you know, eventually put man on the moon. Right. And By the way, around uh, 2006, 2007, that was roughly um, how Google recruiters spoke to you. Like, <laughs> you're, you're welcome to die or come work for us. Oh, yeah. that's true. I feel like that's how most big tech kind of works with, they go after yeah. founders like, okay, we'll build, we'll build your entire product in five seconds or you can join us. <laughs> that's, that's how they do it. You know, quote unquote, aqua hires. Anyways, aqua. <laughs> That's when they hire you in a swimming pool, right? <laughs> yes, correct. Exactly. Yes. And then you got to sing, hires. I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. <laughs> Actually, you're too young for that reference. It's how old I am. But anyways, moving, back, m- moving on. Yeah, moving on. Too young. And then startups are a very weird space to be in. Um, but I, I mean, not only does it stop at the, the Apollo missions that the V2 you know designs really helped with, but even today, I mean, private companies like SpaceX have been using these iterations to extremes, and they've really been pushing rockets to their limits with reusable rockets, self-landing rockets, like ones that have basically cut costs down to fractions of what they used to be. And then you have other companies like um, Relativity Space that's building the world's largest 3D printer to 3D print reusable rockets and rockets in general. So. All, you know, what started off as something extremely malicious that was built out by a disgusting regime is now enabling more space exploration and it's leveling the playing field for pretty much any organization to build and deploy a satellite of its own, if that makes any sense. 
by the way, you're, you're, you're also forgetting one uh, uh, very key propulsion mechanism that uh, the Nazis invented um, uh-huh. that I use today to get from Dubai to Kuwait, the jet engine. Oh, that too. Yeah, yeah. Right. So prior, prior to that, everything was propeller driven. And they, uh, I forgot which Messerschmitt um, fighter mm-hmm. had first used the jet engine, but it was never, you know, in wide use. If it was, mm-hmm. the war may have turned the other way, but they used it very towards the very end of the war. Um, yeah, but on the topic of rockets, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's given us the ability to kind of put uh, very cheap, uh, iterable satellite technology in low Earth orbit just to vastly benefit humanity. And mm-hmm. interestingly enough, Elon Musk's SpaceX recently gave Ukraine nationwide internet connectivity to make sure data can get in and out if the Russians were to attempt to sabotage the land-based kind of communications infrastructure. So Mm -hmm. SpaceX is now operational in Ukraine. Um, Yeah. Thanks to reusable rocket tech. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Starlink. Own that too. Nationwide internet. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those Starlink terminals. And I think the, the interesting thing about that is like, yeah, you know, we went from a very malicious innovation or invention, which was the V2 rockets, built by you know pretty much a very very horrible government that turned into rockets that put man on the moon and now that's turned into rock reusable rockets that are now giving people internet access where they didn't have that where, where they either didn't have it or where the the traditional ways of accessing the internet are at risk of of destruction basically by another force so i think that's the, that's the very interesting part of it of it's 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 you're basically taking something very malicious in times of peace you're iterating on it to build further advanced society and then it's pretty interesting how you know humans kind of go between malicious inventions and ones that kind of push society and they start off at the same phase or same place i mean i think that the next the the sort of next and final one of this category of of tech ones that have benefit tech like inventions and innovations that have benefited all of society is um, one that we've actually done a whole episode on, which is the nuclear energy aspect of things. You know, uh, obviously now that it's been 70 years since World War II, we all know about the Manhattan Project and what was once basically it, it it was basically the project that started the discussion of using nuclear power as a source of energy, and then obviously they used those for the two massive atom bombs that basically ended the Pacific theater. And I noticed I'm saying basically a lot, so I'm going to stop saying that, but <laughs> it, it pretty much sparked debates of, you know, whether this is viable and whether this is safe for people to use in their homes and everyday appliances. And I know you and I have a lot of thoughts about that and we're pretty biased about that because we're, you know, for the lack of a better phrase, nuclear fangirls, I guess, is that a good way to put it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's what I would say too. Both but, of us have profound, disgusting mutations. <laughs> I actually didn't think of it that way, but yeah. Yeah, so so kind of going back to, to, to the whole aspect of it, I mean, it's it started off again as a very horrible thing because they were using it to figure out, figure out a way to cause the most destruction, right? And then with the um, atom bomb, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty with it because it was pretty much something along the lines of we don't know if this chain reaction that we're doing with atoms is even going to stop so one of the actual vi- like one of the actual worries that scientists had was where is this explosion going to stop like is it just going to cover the entire earth like that was a possibility but the fact that we kind of took that again iterated on it very much like the ballistic missiles idea and now we have you know, an option for one of the greenest sources of energy that we have, um, where pretty much anyone in that industry is kind of pushing for its mass adoption because it is the safest thing we have going on right now. It's the most. Well, I, I think Europe is about to mass adopt it to get themselves off of Russian oil and gas. The Germans have clearly seen the light. True. But, uh, yeah, on that point, actually, w- one of the uh, things about the early days of the atomic tests that were happening mm-hmm. in Nevada, or uh, not Nevada, uh, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, I think somebody calculated that uh, there was a three in one million chance that detonating an atom bomb would set fire to the Earth's atmosphere. A one in three million chance, really? A three in one million chance. Of three in one million. 
and um, they decided to go through with it anyways. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, that's not zero. That's still pretty freaking terrifying. I mean, I, I would still cross the street if you told me there was a three in one million chance of being hit by a bus. True. But still, the <laughs> prospects. Yeah. 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 I, wonder how, I wonder how different the world would be if, if the, we, we accidentally set fire to the atmosphere in 1945. Well, it wouldn't really matter because we'd all be dead. True. True. I'd be not even an afterthought of an afterthought. So I guess I, I wouldn't really care, would I? I guess not. Or, or putting it to, to put it in terms that are more uh, friendly to VC and tech podcasts. It's it's below my line. I don't care about it. Uh, it <laughs> humanity um, would have been below humanity's line. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. The, the number it's, of inventions that have come from war is just really never ending. From yeah. walkie talkies, night vision goggles. Um, what else? I mean, yeah, the, the the two that you just mentioned are basically ones that have helped us with, you know, more on an individual scale than a societal one. I mean, give, yeah. giving us vision at night, great photography, great for reconnaissance in the in the event of a war, awesome communication that's reliable, kind of walkie talkies as well. Um, they're now used for you know better communication during construction, for example, and uh, better photos for photojournalism or. Um, even as photo, like taking photos as an art form, um, you know, all these technologies have used to either enhance or improve ways things work or are expressed. And then, I mean, the, the funny thing about it is that it doesn't stop at tech. There's normal physical materials that we use that, that all have origins in the war as well. So, um, that's the sort of third category that I kind of mentioned earlier, which was the non-tech one that was individually beneficial to everyone. Um, you'll find things like paper and napkins. So they were based, they were originally used as something to prevent bleeding by adding cellulose to bandages. Um, and now we have, you know, something to wipe our hands with when we're done eating at a restaurant. Um, yeah. And then the more, the more common one, which is duct tape. Um, duct tape was originally made to seal ammo cases before they were shipped off to the front lines. Yeah. Um, and nowadays now, it's known as the uh, poor man's treatment for diarrhea. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. It's it's uh, adhesive. Me? No, no, I feel I've I've now that you said it, like looking back at some points in my life, I, I could have used some duct tape. But anyways. Uh, <laughs> um, it's it's I think the the nice thing about it is like the it's it's the the best way to put it is like also you know this was used to ship and seal ammos and now we we use it for again everyday everyday uh, fixes everyday things we like to construct um, so like the the one thing you see everyday is on kidnappings beach, kidnappings too yeah that's that's uh, interrogations. Um, so again, it kind of follows a theme of like good and bad applications for things all started during, during the war. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it, you know that that's that's the sort of rabbit hole that I fell into. Of, but through, throughout know, history, okay, throughout history, war has been kind of the reason behind the creation of some of humanity's most amazing tech. So what we know is that in in cases where you have extreme incentives, for example, the threat of being immediately murdered by your geopolitical enemy. That is an amazing incentive to actually be super innovative to give yourself the upper hand. Um, while it does confirm humanity's tendency to respond to incentives, um, you know, and how there's a clear correlation between ingenuity and how immense the incentive is, it's also kind of disheartening to me that we need to be threatened to be killed in order to accomplish amazing things. Um, so imagine a jockey at a horse race and you're the horse, but instead of having your ass whipped, the jockey pulls the pin on a grenade and just drops it directly under your jimmies. Like <laughs> imagine how fast you're going to run if that was just the normal course of events. And kind of it's it's the same thing with innovation. Because unless you are threatened with being blown up by a grenade, you are not going to be as innovative as the human mind allows because I guess the incentive just kind of isn't there. So part of this reminds me about the climate change debate and why people tend to think that nobody seems to be doing anything and nobody seems to get moving. 
Now, I agree there's a lot more that can be done, but I should say that there's a lot of people moving on this and there's a lot of people doing some really amazing things in this space. They just do it quietly and you don't really hear from them unless you're looking for them. And, and B, um, to people who aren't really climate inclined, the impending doom associated with a continuously increasing rate of atmospheric CO2 does not seem to scare them with an immediate and undeniably apparent you know, risk factor kind of hashing out. So, for example, in a war, there's a missile soaring overhead and impacting your local city. So the incentive is clear to do something. But that's right. not quite the change. That's not quite the thing with climate change because it's like, oh, you know, it's half a degree Fahrenheit hotter this summer than it was 10 summers ago. And that's not something that immediately scares paper, it scares people. Um, yeah, I think I think that's the people. People are less scared by, you know, we're headed in warnings that basically say we're headed in this direction versus warnings to, it's say, imminent. Yeah, you know? like it's it's incoming right now. Right. And, you know, the, the nature of climate change is there's not one thing that's imminent, you know, but there's no certain date where something's going to happen. It's just going to get progressively, you know, worse, tiny bit by tiny sure, bit. Yeah. But the, the worst of runaway climate change is forecast for kind of the second half of the century. And that's assuming we do nothing and we continue to burn fossil fuels at the crazy rate we're doing now. Um, and if, if we wait until then to begin decarbonizing, we're fucked. But thankfully, there are those who see the immediate risks involved and understand what is slowly building and what is going to be imminent towards the end of the century, and they're acting now. So they're, they're acting like the metaphorical jockey dropping the grenade under the jimmies. But the big question is, how do we make the incentive for anything as bloody apparent as the consequences of losing a war? Right? True. So one way to do it uh, is to do it with a financial incentive. So you do that in the form of a prize that can only be won within a certain time frame. Um, and going back to the, the, the climate change example, so we've all heard of the X prize, right? So the X prize is actually a really great example of this. The X prize is a, it's a financial prize presented to teams that can solve difficult engineering challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the most famous prizes, what one of the most famous prizes was one that was kind of, um, I think it was back in the mid two thousands and it was sort of directly responsible for the creation of the rocket engines that are now used by Virgin Galactic on a commercial scale. Um, another interesting X prize competition is the hundred million dollar direct air capture prize being funded by Elon Musk. So for the unacquainted, um, director capture is basically the idea that we can basically clean carbon dioxide directly out of the air, mm-hmm. uh, kind of sucking it in, putting it through like you know, some chemical or physical process and then pumping it out the other side. And in that process, you have captured CO2 directly out of the air, directly out of the atmosphere. Um, right. And the... The, the point of this competition is really to create a super cost effective uh, CO2 direct air capture or DAC technology that can clear gigatons of CO2 from the air. So if every year we're putting 50 to 60 gigatons of CO2 in the air from the form of fossil fuel emissions because of you know all the reasons you use fossil fuels, um, we want to be able to clear those gigatons in a cost effective method in a relatively short time period. Now, assume prizes like this don't exist. Um, you know, people likely won't begin searching for uh, cost-effective direct air capture until after 2060, 2070. And obviously, we're, we don't want to wait that long because we'll be screwed. So how do we incentivize it now? That's that's where the X price comes in. So yeah, I think the, the interesting sort of observation from that end is um, I think the financial incentives is pretty much a very big if it's the closest thing to an existential motivator uh, that 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 businesses and 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 just entrepreneurs, founders in general, kind of use nowadays, because you know, for, since startups even became a thing, it's very much been a you're doing this because either you're, you know, using the the what was it called the uh, what was the name of that economist? I completely forgot his name. The what? guy who wrote Right to Choose. Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Fred Milton. I don't know where that came from. But so, yeah. Free to Milton choose. Friedman, free to choose. Yeah. Free to choose. Yeah. So so using the Friedman definition of a company, like you, well, maybe your your main motivator is 
generating returns and profits for your investors and your share shareholders or nowadays you're using you know that to either you know build out your social status your social image your your if if you're a mission driven company just like achieving that mission specifically um but at the core of it there's there is a lot of financial incentives or factors in a lot of these motivators how do you think that compares with a a existential motivator like okay it's not that if you don't go after this you're going to be poor it's if you don't go after this you're going to be dead so i feel like that's a very big difference in terms of like incentives and and what yeah. that will like what that what reaction that will kind of spur in founders well, the way it works out is the way it works out is you'll be dead in the long term but in the shortest term you'll be poor so in the very short term the financial incentives still prevail uh-huh like true th- there aren't hundreds of millions of people who are at imminent risk of death from climate change this time next year right yeah so yeah and in the, the example of direct air capture by the way so this is associated with not one but two kind of massive goals um that oh surprise surprise elon happens to be super passionate about now first of all being able to wipe co2 out of the air directly obviously reduces the effects of climate change because you are getting rid of the gas most responsible for climate change which is carbon dioxide right um you know less co2 in the air less greenhouse gas effect less heat capture less global warming less everything everything um so you know less co2 in the air means the the um sun's rays that you know hit the earth uh, a lot more of it compared to right now would be reflected back into just space so second of all and i found this pretty interesting and none of this is actually officially documented on the x prize website um and i don't believe elon has ever publicly stated this at least not in association with the x prize or any media he's done for the x prize so spacex's rockets by the way they run on methane which is unlike just about any other major rocket programs fuel mm-hmm. you know you have solid fuel oxygen hydrogen whatever but very few running on methane um, I believe it's only SpaceX running on methane. Now, the reason this is interesting is that Musk's interplanetary life goal, no matter what you think about it, is not really attainable in the short term without rockets that can not only be reused, but refueled from their immediate surroundings. So I see. let's say you send a reusable rocket to Mars. What good is it if, if it if it doesn't have enough fuel to take off again? Right. Where's it going to get fuel exactly mm-hmm. on Mars? Well, the answer to that is is direct air capture. So here, here's the thing: yeah. on Mars, most of the atmosphere is almost the atmosphere is almost entirely carbon dioxide. It's almost entirely CO two. So mm-hmm. being able to capture it in order to produce methane after combining it with hydrogen and putting it through a number of process by the, processes, by the way, will um, allow for uh, the creation of methane to refuel the rocket and then once again fly the reusable rocket. Mm-hmm. So there is no immediate war incentivizing engineering teams to produce this kind of tech this kind of technology this direct air capture technology now f- first of all we don't it, it exists in its basic format now the thing is it's extremely expensive and there's no way to actually really start cleaning the air uh from co2 um right. and the other thing is it, it's definitely not miniaturized so right now the facilities doing dac are quite enormous um but in in order for this to work a on earth and b on mars it needs to be something that's pretty small and the ratio Mm -hmm. of direct air capture of co2 needs to be quite high given the space that this device would occupy yeah i think the the funny thing the funny thing about that is that that brings actually two two like sort of parallels historical parallels that come up which is you know the size of computers and the com- computational power of right now they're yeah. the size of rooms they can only do one basic task and command but we know that you know being a student of history with time they're going to get more powerful and they're going to be able to con- convert or capture more co2 from the air a bit more efficiently um and you're not going to need to use things that big or you're not going to need to rely on um facilities there'll be devices installations um you know i i'd honestly envision and i think i saw this at one point um basically this uh, like a structure the size and shape of a tree that just captured co2 and, and stored it and processed it effectively and just generated 
oxygen yeah. for anyone. You know, it's actually um, roughly the size of a tree. That's actually pretty good at capturing CO2. What is it? A tree. <laughs> you know, I, that's, I, I never thought of it that way. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. It worked yeah, pretty well. True. Um, yeah. You can just like plant them, plant them, just like they'll start growing yeah. whenever. By the way, that, that is one method to like vastly increase this, you know, scale and scope of, of CO2 capture, which is just plant tons and tons and tons of trees. But that creates other issues yeah. because if you're planting more trees than any one particular ecology can support, then you need to start planning for things like irrigation and horticulture oh, right. and all of that. And then the other thing is what trees do you plant? Because you can't exactly just plant anything anywhere. What if you start just introducing crazy invasive mm. species that destroy ecosystems? Just you've captured carbon, but you've wrecked the rainforest. And, you know, yeah. it, 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 there, there are environmental engineering concerns here. But a good start would be planting the trees that have been lost in places where they were natively present. True. Right. I think it's, I think it's the, that is like one. And then the, the very big part of it is like, running off of that idea you know there's a whole aspect of deforestation of there's a lot of of acres i mean specifically in the amazon if you want to look at an example where um things have been cleared out for specific projects and then they've basically been left to rot because those projects didn't like receive the right amount of funding or or, or didn't just end up becoming things physically right um i feel like even just replacing those with with trees that used to be there mm-hmm. um it's it's it doesn't sound like much but it'll go a long way like again it's it's the whole it's the whole tiny changes that happen in your lifetime that just rack up with history that yeah. no one really pays attention to yeah and one of the worst things they're clearing the amazon to do is actually beef production oh that too cuz no. cuz beef itself you know, cows specifically. Gen- if if you've ever driven from Los Angeles to San Francisco, you could tell cows generate a ton of methane. Yes, they they generate quite the amount of methane, and the problem with methane is actually worse than straight up CO two gram for gram because methane will go up into the upper atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, interact, it will oxidize with oxygen, and then actually create more CO two. So. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it, it's quite bad, and uh, you know I've had this debate with people, and they say like, oh, but like you know, eating cows is natural. We didn't. It's not like we were deciding to burn coal. It's like, yeah, but the amount of cows people eat, like the amount of beef people consume mm-hmm. in a year, is not normal by historical standards, not by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the farming of beef that's actually creating all that excess methane. What's actually yeah. quite interesting is the fact that in, in an enclosed space, if you have too many cows, you can strike a match and literally start a fire. <laughs> there is there is that much, you know, which is yeah. why they need to clear massive pastures for feeding reasons and that sort of a thing. That's why they can't farm them like chickens, for example. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, that 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 makes sense. But I feel like the the interesting part is like bringing it back to the whole innovation and entrepreneurship thing, you know. It, it, we followed a very interesting arc, which we went from rockets to, you know, ballistic missiles to reusable rockets to to sp- space exploration missions, right. using the right type of fuel, translating that over to all the climate issues that we're dealing with. And but now we're complaining that cows fart too much. Yeah, yeah, and I, I have a couple of friends and siblings that fart fart too much too. So there, it's not only cows that run on methane. <laughs> I have. <laughs> I have I have friends that run on methane too, but um, no, I was I was gonna say like the continuing on that chain basically. Um, now you're seeing the response to that of there's too much you know there's way too many cows that need to be you know grown basically raised and then slaughtered for meat because the demand for meat is so high. So why can't we generate meat in the lab? And that's where you get companies like Beyond Meat, Impossible Meats, and um, a lot of very, very massive food chain or fast food chains adopting vegan options or meat alternative options. Like Mm -hmm. I know here KFC is running around with ads of uh, plant-based fried chicken and, and uh, Burger King had the impossible Whopper not too long ago. Um, So it's a very, like that's the interesting part about it as well. It's not just a history and it's not just an era that repeats itself, but on top of it, you also have a chain of, you know, looking through businesses that have actually done well um 
a chain of, of a cause followed by responses and responses, which go or touch multiple industries and create multiple new technologies and new things that indirectly and indirectly just really change our lives for the better. Yeah. Technology is always a double-edged sword. Very true. It's, it's always a trade-off because I think it goes back to that one. It, 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 I think the technology, generally speaking, is, is good. It's just our twisted minds applying it for messed up purposes. I mean, it, it goes back, not to get too philosophical, but there's this um, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Um, I don't know if it's a quote that he got, but it was, it was a quote that I read in that book, which is, you know, we've come to understand man for who they are, because they're the people that built the gas chambers, but they're also the people who walked into them, you know? Right. So, so it's a bit of a dark meaning, but cause he was a, a Holocaust survivor and he, you know, that, those that came up, but um, the, the, the realization that you get is yeah. Like people keep inventing stuff. The invention itself is very objective and it's not, it's neutral. It doesn't take a side or anything. But it's just what we use it for and what agendas we use it to push is is, is just it's interesting because this the, is why I don't believe the you know the evil technology narrative like oh this technology now exists and so on and, and therefore evil is now more pervasive like well so is the flip side right like you know but prior sure. to okay social media or even the printing press it was much harder to get the word out on anything like you know creating and distributing informative information was extremely difficult. So a medieval peasant would see only enough, only about as much information as what's contained on a Sunday New York Times throughout their entire life, because that's what all what they could afford yeah. to get their hands on and read. Exactly. Um, but the idea that the printing press allowed misinformation um, to to flourish doesn't mean the printing press was the wrong idea. Right. So yeah. I think the antidote to bad use is more good use. Exactly. Uh, good use. I mean, again, as, as a GovTech founder, just a more, a more involved legislative process to build regulation or regulatory framework that everyone agrees upon instead of one built by specific interests of specific corporations. Um, I think this falls back to a lot of the wild new tech that we have going on now. Um, just going to mention the name, but not dive into it, but the whole Web3 thing that's been going on. Um, but also on top of it, um, yeah, I mean, just the internet, social media. Um, we're in a very interesting point now where, you know, the last couple of invasions that have happened in history, social media wasn't around. So now you're seeing soldiers live tweeting different attacks and different offensives that have been going on. Um, war crimes are being documented in real time and shared retweetable um it's 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 a very interesting time we're reading in but that that we're living in specifically but the yeah, last note th there's been talk of before we move on there's been talk of uh -huh. um see we're gonna go to crypto but th there's been talk of things like bitcoin no. uh -huh. allowing uh russia to basically sidestep all of the sanctions against them all the u.s dollar based sanctions against them oh interesting that too is a double-edged sword because True. while yes, technically they can still settle payments without having uh, to use the dollar, it mm -hmm. also means that everyday people still have access to their life savings now that the banks are no longer functional and they can cut off SWIFT. True. And exactly. there was a very interesting case of, uh, I have to find the news story, but someone in Ukraine realizing that the banking system no longer works, wanted to buy a car so that they could get to Poland um oh. and they couldn't they couldn't transact in hryvnia which is their national currency so what do they do the guy bought it in bitcoin <laughs> really bought a car in bitcoin yep just to get out wow jesus but that case like you know wherever this guy ends up settling down he's going to be a bitcoin maxi pushing why it saved his life and reasonably so of course um but yeah, I mean, the, the, again, it, yeah, it kind of goes back to the whole double-edged sword that you mentioned of it, the the inventions themselves are very neutral and 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 their effects are objective. They they're not subject to inference or opinion, but it's just how they're being applied and what they're being used for that, and and not only that, but how information about those uses are being spread. Um, that's really dictating whether whether technology, historically speaking, gets labeled as good or bad. I mean. 
the last note that I'll add to this on my part is that um, there actually exists a very, very intimate relationship between certain disciplines, disciplines and industries in war. So war or just military, militaristic efforts, agendas, whatever it may be. So I actually have a book in my reading list um, authored by Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, which is called Accessory to War, which basically explain, explains this whole history from the perspective of astrophysics and astronomy and how um, advancements in tech during times of war have helped astronomers obtain data that was never thought of as obtainable. So, you know, we, we talked about the whole rocket right, example. Like what? Give me an example. Yeah, so, so we, talked, we, we talked about the whole rocket example um, and then recently we had the James, James Webb Space Telescope that went up. Not only was that, first of all, pushed to space on a rocket, but all the, all the tools that it has internally to communicate, to observe, to collect data with, with that much precision and that much accuracy, um, that had to have come from some reconnaissance mission or demand that has come up during a reconnaissance or surveillance or um, any sort of mission that happened during a war where information needed to be collected about the other side. And now we're using it to gain a better understanding of our universe. So right. not only is there that, but now, you know, the way astronomers understand and map out stars can be used by generals or maybe was used by generals in, in history that, um, you know, use the seas and use the stars to navigate. Um, and that's how they got around um, barriers, enemy forces, got supplies to where they needed to get to. And it was thanks to people's understanding of the universe and how you kind of saw it from the perspective of Earth. Um, so so it, it kind of shows you one very specific example of um, astronomy, our understanding of the universe and the cosmos, as well as war and how both of them kind of interact with each other, how they kind of feed off of each other as well. And that can be, you know, an episode in and of itself where you have different parallels, whether they're engineering, Lord knows, even financing, accounting, um, art, and how they kind of feed off of war and expressions. And, and actually, now that I mentioned art, there is an example that popped up, which is um, basically those, the, oh, what? Guernica. Guernica. Actually, I was going to bring up Guernica? another one. No, actually. So Guernica, G-U-E-R-N-I-C-A, is a uh -huh. town or city in Spain that during the Spanish Civil War, uh, the Nazis bombed, mm -hmm. basically at the request of Francisco Franco. Mm -hmm. um, and the carnage that was seen kind of inspired Pablo Picasso to, to paint Guernica. Oh, so it's, yeah, an oil painting. Interesting. Yeah, so that's art. That's probably one of the best examples of uh, art inspired by war. Yeah, because I was I was actually going to go the other way and talk about war inspired by art. And this was um, so back in World War One, uh, ships used to um, paint like very abstract white and black stripes and patterns across their ships or All across right. the hull of their ships. And um, what that was used for is for people who are using. Um, instruments that measured distance to make sure that a missile would be launched effectively or a missile, a missile would hit its target. Um, they'd have problems gauging how far that thing is because of those, how long, how far that ship is because of those patterns. And that saved, I bet countless lives. Um, you talk about like, what else? Um, maybe the, the value of art as well, that has increased due to its stories and wars. I mean, I know, um, Germany during World War II were very large art collectors and had very large caches of um, historic. Yeah, collector pieces. is not is not the word for it when you're ripping it off other people's walls. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say it's 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 a collection the same way the the British Museum has collections of 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 you know things from native tribes and where it used to all colonize. over Iraq and Egypt and. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I went to the Getty to, a couple of weeks ago, and I saw they had an entire thing about Babylon, and the, they were all, you know, from from the what was it, um, from the British Museum. I'm like, oh, okay, so it's from it's from it's actually from Iraq, but sure, it's from the British Museum. Um, yeah, exactly. But uh, but yeah, it just kind of shows you that like every single discipline has generated something or has benefited generated something that war has benefited from or people during a war has have benefited from 
um, or something that has come up during a war because of that existential motivator that we talked about fed into an industry that either made it boom or made it basically human beings burn. need better incentives than killing each other i think so too i think if I think that's money the, that's fine if it's as long as it's better than killing each other true i mean i think the the one thing is like we just need to figure something that triggers that that big of a response in people because whenever someone's fight or flight kicks in i mean they do things they didn't know they were able to do and i think that's the reason for most of these things that we've seen during wars um right but you know lord knows if it's if it's a couple of commas on a check that, that'll trigger your fight or flight flight response i mean we'll go with it yeah maybe and we can capture the methane that you produce after a uh, heavy lunch <laughs> to uh launch rockets to mars honestly i if that if that's how i get to mars i'm 100 percent down <laughs> well let's do it Let's do it. Like it's it's partner. Hey, it's a way to let's extend an olive branch to Iran for for them to fund us with uh, kubida kebabs, and then that's a fuel source for me. And then I run on methane, and that's a fuel source for the space exploration rockets. Right. So yeah. there, there, there we go. Yeah, that that joke of yours just got us on a sanctions list. So thank you. Your debit card <laughs> was, is no longer going to work when you go to Seven Eleven at midnight. I was good. I was gonna say it was it was an olive branch that I extended, so maybe it gave me like a peace prize or something. I don't know. Nah, just no. uh, just a visit from uh, some very scary looking people in dark suits. Anyhow, interesting. Anyways, what is uh what's the rest of your week look like? I don't know, man. But I I flew back today, so I'm just really tired. I don't know. Every time I take any flight, I'm tired. It was, it, was, yeah. it was an hour and a half flight from Dubai to Kuwait, which you know I've done four zillion times before. Mm-hmm. And I, for some reason, I, I'm well rested. I had a good night's sleep. And now I just, I really want to pass out. Well, it is pretty late. It's, it's what, 11 p.m. your time right now? Uh, it's 1130. That's not bad. That's a, it's, it's a good time to sleep. I'm old, man. <laughs> I used to be able to pull all-nighters and not give a shit. And now it's like, oh, no, it's 11. My dentures. (laughs) Denture bros. Um, No, but. (laughs) Denture bros. (laughs) What? (laughs) I can't hear you. (laughs) Me undies. Adult diapers. Um, (laughs) I was going to say, though, the um, the, I, I, I kind of feel that, but it's not because of like, not because of age, I'd like to think, but it's just. You know, when when you've been dealing or like drinking from a fire hose for so long in startups, eventually like you put in a sixteen-hour day, and the next day it feels like you ran a marathon. It's like okay, I I need yeah, to just maybe marathon. go for lunch during that that twelve hours. Um, but no, it's it's uh, I think I think both of us are still very much in the stage of let's just recover and then see what's next. Um, the yeah. the, the recovery on my part isn't really you know abstract's kind of going well, but running into all sorts of growing pains and, and, and fun things. Like we're kind of clarifying the, the direction we're headed right now. And um, it's, it's looking promising. I'm, I'm excited, but at the same time, I know that I need to sleep like a baby at night to, to, to just prep for it mentally. You need at the very least six hours a night. Always target that. Yeah. I've, I've been putting in a, a little more recently, but for some reason it's been choppy. So, so it kind of goes back to like, there, there's this one thing I read on today. I learned the subreddit, which is which basically like um, people used to have two sleeps or like two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I've, for some reason, I don't know if this is something that I have naturally, but I've reverted back to it. So like I'd fall asleep at 10 PM, wake up at three, maybe drive around, read a little, check my phone and then sleep at four and then wake up at like seven or, or 8 AM. Yeah, stop driving around because then you're going to start um, mentally training yourself to get sleepy when you drive. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely <laughs> stop, stop driving around. But, you know, yeah. With that, we got, we're going to sign off. So until we next will. week. Until next week. Slava Ukraini. Indeed. And you have no idea what I said. All right. Peace. St- <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>